0: Thank you all for being here. We're delighted to have you here tonight for a conversation on free speech and the free press with investigative reporter and uh, all-around intellectual gadfly, Matt Taibbi. I'm the only person up here tonight not wearing a tie because I thought thought for sure a gonzo journalist would not show up in a tie, (laughs) and I wanted to look cool, and it was too late to go put one on. Matt has had a, a long and storied career in journalism, a longtime political reporter, columnist for Rolling Stone, winner of the 2008 National Magazine Award for uh, columns and commentary, author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestsellers Insane Clown President, and most recently, Hate Incorporated Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another. Uh, but in early 2020, he left Rolling Stone to hang out his own shingle at Substack, where uh, his site, Racket News, is uh, near the top of the charts with over uh, 360,000 subscribers, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Four, 400,000. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I, I shortchanged him. Uh, but he is most famous lately for being the first to look at and report on the Twitter files. Uh, That's the treasure trove of internal communications at Twitter, giving everyone a look under the hood at what was going on with what turned out to be a fairly massive federal campaign to lean on social media companies and suppress, uh, suppress speech. Now that's all I think, interesting enough for an introduction, but but there's more. Uh, I should say, most of the time when I'm doing this sort of thing, when I have to do an introduction, I'm often introducing a career academic, or worse, a career politician, and by and large, these aren't the most interesting people in the world. So you you have to sort of scour the web, and if you want to spice it up, you have to go truffle hunting uh, for just some little detail that suggests there was a spark of adventure in that person at some point. This time, I I really didn't have to strain. It's an embarrassment of riches right there in the official bio. So around the time uh, Matt graduated college, the Soviet Union conveniently collapsed, and he went east, young man, to uh, make his mark in journalism. And this is actually from the official bio. He focused on participatory journalism, working in a series of jobs to show ordinary Russian life. A bricklayer in Siberia, worked as a moonshine dealer, a professional clown, a keeper in an elephant cage, and a, a construction worker in, in an orthodox monastery. This next bit is from Wikipedia, so I can't vouch for its total accuracy, but. <laughs> Taibi was deported from Uzbekistan in 1992 for writing an article for the Associated Press critical of President Islam Karimov At the time of his deportation, he was the starting left fielder for the Uzbek national baseball team. (laughs) He later moved to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, where he played professional basketball and became known as the Mongolian Rodman. (laughs) He also worked for a short time as an investigator at a Boston-based private detective agency. I read a lot of crime novels. Uh, I, I suspect this might be one of those jobs that, that sounds a lot cooler than it is, but, and we may come back to that. Uh, but uh, first, I'd like to ask Matt about the, about the Twitter files. Uh, this tranche of documents uh, that, uh, well, first of all, I refuse to call Twitter X because whatever Elon Musk wants, because then I'd be asking about the X-Files and we'd all get confused. Um, but you got a, a close look uh, uh, starting you know, in late 2022 at, at all these internal communications from Twitter, uh, that uh, many of which revealed a, a massive governmental pressure campaign. Um, can you tell us what you can about how this opportunity came about and also what in your view are the most disturbing revelations that either you or the, the other recipients of, of other parts of the files found? Sure, thanks.
1: Uh, first of all, Gene, thank you for that introduction. That, that was it great. itself. <laughs> and um, I also wanted to say thank you to everybody for, for coming out and thank you to the Cato Institute. Um, you know, I probably wasn't, Uh, terribly in sync with Cato on a lot of issues earlier in my career when I was reporting on Wall Street. Um, But now I think Cato uh, has a position of critical importance in American society and I believe that more than ever after doing the Twitter files we can get to why. Uh, For a couple of reasons, Um, we're in a period where individual liberty has been uh, denigrated and downplayed probably more than ever in our recent history. Uh, And also, the entire idea of principled civil society organizations uh, is now at risk uh, because there's a general belief, um, as we found in the Twitter files, that these organizations should really uh, not be serving as checks and balances to one another and to government, but should be working in in concert, uh, sort of under the table in a sub-Rosa way with uh, government agencies. Uh, so, anyway, I just wanted to thank the Cato Institute because the between I think they're a critically important organization right now. Um, the, yeah, the Twitter files came about in a really weird way. Obviously, uh, Elon Musk is an eccentric billionaire who, who bought a company for $44 billion, a little bit as a joke, um, and it, partly because he was online a lot and there were things about the uh, online experience he didn't like uh, and he had hinted publicly that he was going to release some files so I I knew that he was a reader of my site and I mentioned something in one of my articles to the effect that if he were to open up those files then he would become an American folk hero um, and uh, shortly after that there was somebody from Twitter reached out to me and uh, it turned out that um, myself, uh, the former New York Times writer Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and a few other reporters, we got this incredible opportunity to look through basically anything we wanted, and, and it was a very strange situation because normally a, you know, when you, a source comes to a journalist, they have a very specific idea of what they want out of press coverage. Um, in this case, it was the exact opposite. We were told... Uh, You can look at anything you want, and we don't really care what it is. Um, We knew there was going to be some kind of review, but they didn't really care what the search terms were. So we were just given big masses of documents and didn't really know where to start in terms of what the plot would be. And uh, it took, you know, a good three weeks or a month of constant reading and research about all these different organizations and acronyms that we were seeing um, in the company's internal emails to realize that there was at least one story that we could settle on that made sense and that we could prove, which was that uh, the FBI, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence um, had a systematic system of communication Um, back and forth with Twitter and other internet platforms where uh, through which they delivered enormous quantities of recommendations about content. Now, you you can quibble over whether or not that constitutes a First Amendment violation, but I think it it was something none of us were prepared for. We thought maybe we would find one or two phone calls from the FBI about this or that. Uh, Instead, we were finding spreadsheets, thousands at a time, uh, saying these are accounts that we're concerned about. Um, you, know, you may choose to find them in violation of your community standards. Whole offices of the FBI were working uh, sometimes on this project. They were doing nothing but looking for violations of Twitter's terms of service. Uh, we found one situation where the Baltimore field office was doing nothing but that, Um, So, uh, it it was an extraordinary story, and it was uh, very, very challenging because we had to do a lot of it fast. Uh, There was a lot of public criticism, and um, I think, you know, in in the long run, even though the initial coverage was not great, I think uh, the public got a lot out of it, and it spurred a lot of conversation, which I think was positive.
0: And these communications were not all like gee, this seems like it might be wrong, or perhaps (laughs) violent, right? Like, uh, there there is a very, uh, in at least some of them that I've seen, a very uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, threatening tone to some of them, at least.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's actually a really good point. In the entire, realm of, you know, it's probably 150,000 emails and, you know, more communications than that if you include the Slack chats and things that we were looking at, we found exactly one instance of a Twitter employee saying, maybe this is a bad idea. In terms of, this came actually during the debate over whether or not to ban Donald Trump after January 6th. And there was a question of, well, is this going to lead us down a slippery slope of being um, in a position where we're somehow above the politicians uh, who run the country? Isn't that a dangerous place for a tech company to be? And uh, that person was, of course, ignored. Uh, so, but there was only one of those instances and that we looked for more.
0: And to- one thing that's surprising to me is that uh, you know when this came out, and some of it, you know, you, uh, you know, first they came for the, the insane anti-vaxxers, and I was not an insane anti-vaxxer, so uh, therefore I said nothing. But they very quickly got into shadow banning or de-amplifying uh, people that were well qualified and were. Uh, you know, promoting true information about things like COVID. Um, So it it went, it seems very quickly from Alex Jones to, uh, you know, Stanford epidemiologists who uh, are critical of lockdowns or people who are uh, 100% in favor of people at risk being vaccinated, but maybe have questions about children and, and how the risk profile works out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, that's exactly uh, the, the, the problem. Um, in fact, I was looking back today at the uh, initial reactions after Alex Jones was suppressed. And um, obviously, Alex Jones is a highly controversial figure. He runs the site Infowars. He's, he's got a very, very bad reputation journalistically among a lot of people, but there was there were elements to the story about how he was removed that should have raised red flags for media people, which was that this was done behind closed doors, it was done in concert, um, seemingly along with government officials, although that hasn't been proven, but certainly um, a very small number of uh, companies got together and they decided uh, sort of, uh, in secret, that they were going to get rid of this, this person all at once. And the problem was we're, this created a template where you could replace the traditional litigation-based system for regulating journalists that people like me have had to deal with their whole lives, which is when you screw up, if you you get sued, and that, that's, that's the regulatory mechanism that keeps you honest. Um, instead of that, we're going to now have this new system where... Uh, you know, a handful of uh, sort of oligopolistic tech companies in consultation with the government um, can simply decide that somebody is unsuitable or a purveyor of uh, misinformation. And it's one thing when it's Alex Jones, uh, but as you point out, in a very short period of time, actually in less than three years, that progressed to people like uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, uh, Martin Kaldorf, who is a Harvard um, scientist, uh, Suneta Gupta, Dr. Aaron Hariyadi from the University of California system. None of these people are extremist, extremists. They're all highly credentialed scientists. Um, and they weren't per- saying anything that was factually untrue. There was nothing that you could even think about bringing a lawsuit about. They, were, they merely had a different. Uh, a difference of opinion with official policy. Um, uh, All three of them uh, eventually signed something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which uh, basically said that they thought the government wasn't paying enough attention to age discrepancies in COVID outcomes, uh, that lockdowns were causing mental health outcomes that were uh, outweighing the benefits, and, um, and that children, especially, were not at risk. Uh, and that's studies in Sweden, where uh, kids were not held out of school, had borne this out that there hadn't been a single death. Um, and for all that, uh, these scientists became some of the most censored people on, on Earth. And so that's how quickly this thing devolved from Sort of bad actors or, or questionable actors to to people who are merely disagreeing with with the government,
0: and that's that's what's really dangerous. On uh, the uh, invite text for this, we uh, there's a phrase about a free press is needed to preserve our democracy. But what I thought was remarkable about all this, uh, you know, when it when it broke and as we learned more, was that the, you kept hearing this phrase it's a nothing burger. Like, not it's not happening, but it, it, we all knew it was happening and it's good anyway. Uh, From, you know, people in the mainstream media who, you know, the old ethic of journalists used to be, I I think they, you know, as recently as 10 years ago, a lot of people would have been screaming bloody murder about a government effort to censor people, particularly uh, people who had a different viewpoint that turned out to have a, a lot of credibility as we learn more uh, what what do you think explains this and uh, you know you, you've said in the past that there is something about how Donald Trump melted everyone's brains and not just the people uh, uh, on his side of the aisle but some of the people against him
1: yeah they're In 2016, in the summer of 2016, there was a very influential um, New York Times article that was called Donald Trump is Testing the Norms of Objectivity in Journalism. And um, it was written by a guy named Jim Rutenberg. And the idea of the article was that Donald Trump was so dangerous that we we as journalists have to change the way we do business completely. Instead of just worrying about being true, we now have to worry about being true to history's judgment. And so the idea was that journalists had to become um, more conscious of inspiring the correct political behavior in readers. You know, the old school way, you know, I I come from a family of journalists. My father was a reporter here in New York City for ages. Uh, I grew up around reporters. The idea we were raised with was that, you know, we get the information right, we put it out there, and it's up to the audience to decide what to do with it because that's how free societies work. We're not telling you what to do with it. It's, uh, it's you're responsible adults and we trust you. And that was a relationship and that's, that's why the, the, the media, um, when it's most effective is when that relationship is strong. Well, after the Trump came along, there was this big change in how people thought about the role of the press And the new attitude was we have to do everything possible to make sure that this particular person doesn't get elected. And on top of that, um, we no longer trust our audiences to make the right decisions. Uh, And so we have to keep certain information from them because they might misuse it. So a great example is with the COVID situation. Why was somebody like Martin Kaldorf or Jay Bhattacharya censored? It's not because necessarily they were afraid of the political influence of those people. It's because they believe that if people find out, for instance, um, that natural immunity actually is effective and that you don't need the vaccine if you've already gotten the disease, that they won't go and get vaccinated. Therefore, that's misinformation. So we can't trust you to know that and go and get vaccinated anyway. We have to keep that information from you. And so, yeah, there was this new ethos about, you know, not just telling you what the truth is or, or giving you information that was important and, and true, but we also have to make a decision about whether or not this is good for you to know or not. And I think that's what happened with the Twitter files, which was, you know, by any objective standard, any any journalist in the world would have loved to do this story, and they all pretended that they were totally uninterested in it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but there was this idea that you know they had to tell uh, their audiences that, oh, there's nothing to see here. It's not important that you know that the FBI and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence are regularly talking to 20 of the biggest internet companies in the world. Um, that's a nothing burger. You shouldn't be looking at that. You shouldn't look at these emails. And... Um, that's just a new thing for, for journalists. Uh, yeah, as, as you say, 10 years ago when the Snowden thing happened, I, I think you would have seen a totally different response.
0: Definitely. Uh, well, it, it, Even if it didn't, uh, you know, the, the response of uh, the establishment press was to downplay it, um, it did lead to a congressional hearing in March, uh, before they have to read this, the Judiciary Committee's Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, which is chaired by Jim Jordan, who I imagine you don't ordinarily have a lot in common with politically. Um, But uh, this is the part I wanted to ask you about. Uh, uh, This sounds like tinfoil hat stuff, but it's true. The same day that you testified before the committee, an IRS agent showed up at your house uh, to leave a note, which I don't know is one hell of a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: so that was such a that was that was a very surreal day. I don't know how many people saw that hearing, um, but it, it was weird already because Michael Schellenberger and I testified, and they. We were not asked any questions about the material by any of the members, the Democratic Party members. Um, but, and all, they all accused us of all kinds of things, and actually they, one of them even said I should take my tinfoil hat off uh, <laughs> at one point. Um, but then after we got done with the, the event, I, I took a train home to New Jersey, and um, there, was a, there had been a note left in my door that the IRS had come uh, at the exact moment I was testifying, and I, my first thought was, "No way! There's no way that this is related." Uh, and I just initially wasn't going to do anything about it. Um, then I consulted with some people who I had known um, who had been elected officials in the past, and they said, "No, you better tell the committee about it because if this is really a thing, then you're, um, you know, you, you might." be helping somebody do witness tampering, or you're not helping to prevent it. So I told the committee about it, and I didn't say anything about it publicly until we got some information back from the IRS after Jim Jordan sent a query to the IRS. And um, it came out that they had opened the case on me on Christmas Eve of 2022, which was a Saturday. Uh, And it happened to be the day that um, we released uh, probably the, the biggest Twitter file story about the relationship between the FBI, Homeland Security, um, and we even mentioned the CIA in that, uh, in that story. So that's when I think the, the illusion that it was a... Um, you know that it was some kind of coincidence kind of passed away and, and I didn't owe any money in fact they owed they owed me uh money uh, so it was it was really weird
0: christmas eve yeah your your tax dollars at work <laughs> uh, uh, well uh and since then we've had uh you know uh, the uh uh, July 4th the decision in a related case uh, mm-hmm. the Missouri versus Biden case uh, that sweeps up a lot of uh, this this effort uh, to suppress speech online um, we've had uh, you know first the district uh, court injunction on July 4th uh, which everyone just said this is this is an outlier this judge is crazy uh, he was appointed by Trump and and uh, but then the, the, fifth, the Fifth Circuit panel uh, in September, I think, uh, has said this is, a, this is a very real thing, and uh, it, uh, let me see if I have the, the quote. The courts have rarely been faced with a coordinated campaign of this magnitude orchestrated by federal officials that jeopardize the fundamental aspect of American life. Uh, therefore, the district court was correct uh, in uh, its assessment that unrelenting pressure from certain government officials likely had the intended result of suppressing millions of protected free speech postings by American citizens. Uh, now, my colleagues who work on this issue, we published a paper on, uh, they, they call this jawboning, mm-hmm. government threats that are sort of like, uh, you know, vaguely sopranos Nice business you've got here, and it's very difficult to, for courts to police the line between, you know, government speech that's permitted and government speech that has a, a threat behind it. How do you expect this to to play out, and do you think the courts are any kind of long-term solution to this?
1: Um, well, you know, I,
0: I covered
1: the um, appellate hearing. Uh, about this issue in Louisiana, and um, it's funny two of the three judges in, in the hearing actually used the exact metaphor you, you just brought up, um, invoking uh, the mafia, you know the, talking about how when the government says, "We want you to do this, um, And it doesn't say, what the threat is, it's exactly like a, you know, a mob organization saying, you know, nice nice internet company you have there. It sure be a shame if something happened to it. Um, and uh, the first time a judge said that, I, I saw the, the Biden administration lawyer, a kind of crestfallen look came over his face. The second time it happened with a different judge, he did one of those, because then he, knew, he could see that the, the game was up. Um, the ruling that the appellate uh, court eventually handed down was actually, um, you know, it took quite a big bite out of the injunction, uh, although they just restored a big part of it. They had taken the Department of Homeland Security out of the injunction. Now it's back in. Um, but, you know, I would say two things. It's, it's very uh, encouraging that uh, the judges who have seen the evidence uh, in this case which includes um, you know, things like Biden administration officials F-bombing uh, F- Facebook executives and telling them they have to fix something ASAP uh, or get it down, um, or inquiring why is something still up you know, af- after being told uh, to take something down previously. And this is why the appellate judges decided that it met a, a very strict test. Um, it's apparently a four-part test that goes into deciding whether or not this is you know, just protected speech on the part of the government, or whether it's um, you know, a violation of the First Amendment. And one of the things is that they were uh, using things that were phrased virtually as orders. That was the language that the courts used. And this is all over the Twitter files, it's all over the evidence in the Missouri v. Biden case, where you see these letters from government officials, Um, they don't tell you what the implied threat is. The implied threat, obviously, is regulatory action or, you know, increased taxation or whatever it is, but they'll say, you know, this has got to go, we want this out right now, Uh, you know, why hasn't this person been acted upon already, Um, and I... No matter whether that's a a violation of the First Amendment or not, and they they ruled that it was, in the case of the White House and the FBI and I I believe the Surgeon General's office and and one other agency, um, I think it is a violation of the values of free speech culture, which gets to the other part of your question, which is, you know, no matter matter how the judges rule, we, we sort of have a larger problem, which is a decline in um, respect for, uh, for free speech culture. It used to be so reflexive in American society, we wouldn't have tolerated uh, this kind of thing, you know, back in the 80s or 90s. Uh, you, you just couldn't have imagined something like this happening. People f- freaked out at the idea of labels putting on, being put on um, rock music records, uh, and now people are shrugging their shoulders at whole departments in the government sending out recommendations for content to be taken down, um, and I think that's reflective of a big cultural change. I don't know about you,
0: but... The, the, that the, was and, absolutely you know. going to be my next question. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I was reading when I was coming on the tr- down on the train, or up on the train, rather, uh, the, your speech from uh, Freedom Fest in July where you talk about free speech culture and the idea that you know, we've got what the courts can do, we've got what the le- legislatures can do, and uh, you know, we've got uh, actually free speech in terms of Supreme Court doctrine is about as sound as it's ever been in, in the history of the United States. But, you know, that's pretty fragile when people uh, use the quote in the speech from uh, uh, Judge learn at Hand: uh, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women when it dies there. No constitution, no law, no court can, can save it. No, they can't even do much to help it. Um, and and then you, you also said that, uh, you know, we used to say uh, uh, none of your damn business when we were asked about politics, defend your right to say what you wanted. Uh, and then you said, uh, nobody thinks that way anymore either. Young people especially are worried about, to the point of mental illness, about their likes and ratios. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, we're about the the same age, and I I frankly thought I'd be a lot older before I got to the stage of full-throated, get off my lawn. (laughs) But how much of this is generational? You know, you you alluded to the uh, uh, Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center. You know, if you're about our age, you remember watching on cable when Frank Zappa and Dee Snider testified before the Senate, and uh, everyone I knew just thought this was, even this little incursion uh, into, you know, just lean on the company a little bit to put a a record label on, uh, thought that was, Horrible. Uh, and you sometimes get the, the idea that Tipper Gore has won her mentality. Uh, you know, when you, if you see something that offends you, you know, it, it should be banned or labeled, uh, has prevailed. So, how much of this, in your judgment, is, is generational, and, and how much of it, you know, related has to do with uh, the rise of social media itself?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, um, a lot, certainly, a lot of it, I think, is generational. Uh, you know, we, there's there was a recent um, Pew Center survey that showed that uh, majorities of Americans now, a, a, a solid majority, I think it was 55 or 56 percent, now thinks that there should be some restrictions on. False information, even if that means, um, you know, less freedom of information. uh, That's kind of a new idea in American society. We've never had, um, you know, somebody outlawing, there's obviously libel, there's there's slander, there's, you know, defamation, but these are civil litigation categories. There's a new sort of rising movement that believes that free speech um, and uh, liberal democracy just don't work. Uh, that uh, it's a, yeah, I think you'll hear a lot from younger voters and I, I heard this you know because I cover po- presidential politics and I interviewed a lot of younger voters in the last two cycles. There's a lot of pessimism about um, kind of the American way. There are a lot of younger people who are looking at lives where they don't think they're going to ever own a home or they're not going to be able to settle down and have families until maybe they're in their late 30s or 40s and they're angry about that, and they they don't value um, you know things like free speech. As, they're not as impressed by uh, the you know the guarantees that are on the Constitution, the things that really you know may, make America different from other places in the world. Um, and they think um, you know that maybe they would trade in some of those freedoms for uh, for some more economic uh, security. I hear that every now and then. Uh, but I also think, you know, this is, this is a process that's been growing for, for a couple of decades now. I mean, uh, with the war on terror, um, we started kind of systematically violating civil liberties uh, all over the place. I mean, every one of the Bill of Rights took a hit after 9-11, and we had a state of emergency that um, was signed by George W. Bush three days after 9-11, and it was... Um, Kept being re-signed by every successive president. Joe Biden just did it uh, for the 22nd time, I believe, um, a month ago. Uh, so we've remained in a state of emergency all those years. And uh, secrecy and presidential power have kept expanding. And the implicit argument in all of this is that uh, open society, free society, um, uh, can't protect itself. It's it's too strong. It's it's too weak to survive in a world surrounded by enemies, uh, and that was the ethos under the war on terror. Now in the Trump years, you hear this new argument, which is that democracy can't survive um, uh, in a world where there's just the forces of reaction and Trumpism. Um, we need something stronger than free speech and you know a, f- a First Amendment governed. Uh, Democracy to protect ourselves from that, so I think it's it's this sort of general disdain for civil liberties and freedom as an idea, um, which is just depressing. I you know I I went to school in the former Soviet Union and, and I remember um, just how excited Russians were when the uh, at the end of the of the Soviet period and how. Um, everyone was just so desperate to meet an American because they just wanted to know what freedom was like and, and what it was like to be able to do or, or say whatever you wanted. And I think that there's just a lack of excitement about that, um, you know, in in the United States now. And you know, I, we have to do something to bring that back. I'm not sure what that is.
0: Well, think about it because we're going to open up for audience questions, but maybe we'll come back around to that at the end, and you can. Bring us up, <laughs> after all the sad stuff we've said today. Um, Who Are you guys going to, uh, the, the microphone is gonna come around. And uh, um, yes, ma'am. Is it true all the country, or is it, is it true uh, only
1: on certain uh, geo, uh, uh, geo, geographical sections of the country?
0: Is what is what? Uh,
1: the the uh, restriction on free speech that's one question. And the second question is, because uh, you get banned from c- having certain jobs, if you say something uh, out of line on social media, or li- something about your lifestyle in the past has is questionable, in quotes, then you can't get jobs. So there are two questions there. Well, we, we definitely saw countless examples of people suffering huge ranges of consequences for saying the wrong thing online. And that could be, you know, we we mentioned those scientists. Um, Two of the three of them lost their jobs. Uh, We actually saw uh, quite a large number of doctors who lost their jobs um, just for voicing their medical opinions. But that isn't where it stops. Um, There's a whole range now of kind of coordinated punishments that go along with being judged to be a wrong thinker online. You can um, you can be denied banking services. Uh, you can be downranked for advertising, which can really uh, hurt your business. Um, you can be obviously taken offline, which is uh, devastating if you're in the media, for instance. Um, there are just a whole range of things that happen to people uh, that are you know, above and beyond just having your point of view dialed down or deamplified, uh, We saw, um, there were people who were accused of uh, crimes on January 6th, uh, even of just misdemeanors, who were prevented from using uh, fundraising services to raise money for their own criminal defense. Uh, and so, even this is even before, again, this is before they were convicted, so the, there's, there are problems here that go beyond speech. There, there's, there are whole ranges of civil liberties concerns that are built into this because the penalties are expanding in all these different directions. They're trying to coordinate things like your ability to use other kinds of online services, to shop, to advertise, to use payment processing um, companies like PayPal or credit cards or any of those things. So, uh, and that's not, unfortunately, not limited geographically to any anywhere. In fact, it's in countries all over the world as well. So, uh, yeah, it's not good news.
0: To the point that uh, about employment, um, I to plug my one of my colleagues' work here, Emily Eakins, uh, who's a director of polling at Cato. Uh, you know, uh, she said she uh, published. Uh, a poll a couple years ago that uh, said nearly a third, the results were nearly a third of Americans say they're personally worried about missing out on career opportunities or even losing their job uh, if people knew their actual political opinions, uh, many of which are probably not all that awful. Um, And the same poll said that, uh, is it 62% of Americans uh said they had political views they're afraid to to share uh and the question was uh you know agree or disagree with uh the political climate these days prevents me from saying things I believe because others might find them offensive and so that might be part of a direction in culture. I also think there's uh an element of employment law and so and the way civil rights law has evolved uh that also provides an incentive for private employers to uh, tamp down on controversial speech or impolitic speech, um, and sometimes in these cases it's hard to, uh, you know, as in, in cases like social media speech suppression and uh, cancel culture in general, it's sometimes hard to tell where the where state action ends and private uh, action begins. Um, Freda, sorry, I'm picking on everyone in the front row.
1: Why isn't there more clamoring to get Facebook and the other social media companies to release their, their files? Um, well, there, there have been some efforts. Uh, the, the same committee, the Weaponization of Government Committee did get um, uh, quite an, uh, a lot of files from Facebook, not you know the, the amount that we got at Twitter, um, and they did publish a whole bunch of stuff over the summer. But you know, a- absent uh, you know more eccentric billionaires buying these companies, uh, we're just not going to see something like what happened with Twitter probably you know ever again. That that was a very unusual situation. Um, there might be whistleblowers, you know, We there are people who come from companies like Google who, who will tell reporters a few things here and there. Um, but the, by and large, the, the mechanisms about how uh, censorship operates, particularly at Google, I think Google is a, black, a real black box to reporters. Um, uh, you know, it's just hard to get That information, unless somebody wants to give it to us, and you know, that that they're not going to do that easily.
0: I don't know. You you, dealer's choice. I want to first thank Cato and uh, Harvard Club for putting this together, it's pretty awesome. Matt, big fan of your Substack, everybody should be. Um, Armchair historian here, if you could put this context of free speech and suppression of it in historical terms, the sedition acts of the Wilson era or the McCarthyite era or Nixonian um, efforts to suppress free speech, where might you put today's climate and efforts?
1: Uh, First of all, thanks for the question. Um, I thought about this exact question on the way here and I think there's kind of a two-part answer. Um, the first part is that uh, our government t- now has more capability to get more information about every individual individual citizen than any government ever has uh, in history, and that includes, um, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, w- during the KGB years or the NKVD years, or you know, the East Germany under the Stasi. Um, It starts with geolocation. Uh, Earlier this year, the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, admitted that, yes, we we do purchase geolocation information from uh, third-party vendors. Uh, Then we learned that the the Department of Defense does it. Um, We also learned that U.S. Customs and Border Protection do it. We're going to learn eventually that they all do it. Uh, and here's how that works. Every, how, how many people have, have ever downloaded a kind of a really silly app on their phone and clicked on it and it'll say something like, hey, do you mind if we use your information for you know, this or that? Um, and you just want to use the app, so you click yes. Uh, well, it turns out that some of those apps, especially the really silly ones, um, are selling information about where you are uh, to government vendors. Um, There were extraordinary stories that went under the radar about, um, for instance, the Department of Defense uh, bought information about 98 million people who had used an app called Muslim Pro, uh, which was uh, designed, it's a little app that helps uh, Muslims uh, orient themselves toward Mecca when they want to pray. And that little app was selling information about where people were. Uh, there was another app that was selling, that was designed to help people uh, detect storms in their area. There was another one that was, uh, that taught you how to install shelves in your bedroom. Uh, the government's buying up all, these, all of this information and that's only part of it. There's this whole galaxy of stuff that they can get. Uh, your entire purchase history, what sites you visit, um, what, uh, what social media accounts, uh, you've even lurked. Forget about you know, leaving a like or a comment on it. Um, how much time you spend uh, on certain pages. They have details about everybody's individual lives. Um, they can build an extraordinary picture about pretty much everybody without a warrant. Even though there are specific Supreme Court cases that say, uh, there's a court case, uh, Carpenter v. Uh, United States, that says buying geo- getting geolocation without a warrant um, is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, but they do it anyway. Um, so they have the ability to get basically everything about everybody and they want what what they call total visibility into everything, which is why they're constantly campaigning against um, sites like Signal uh, that encrypt messages because they don't want people to be able to do encrypted messaging anymore. They think that's a security risk. So that's one thing is that they can get any information they want about anybody are they doing it? Um, you know we don 't know we, we're, we do find out that like in cases like the, with the j six defendants that they have um, you know they, they have enormous amounts of information about people who haven 't even committed crimes yet uh, and this is part of an, again an evolving situation uh, that began with the war on terror when they stop requiring that there be probable cause to start investigating people, and so I, I, I think we're in the early stages of kind of this new sort of surveillance state that we don't really know what the end game of it is, but I think it's quite scary, and, and it's scarier than anything we've we've dealt with in America before.
0: I'm gonna take a moderator's privilege and ask the, the last question. Um, uh, you recently wrote that you're researching a, a book on anti-disinformation, digital surveillance, and other dystopian wonders, which I think your last comments relate to. Um, tell us just a little bit more about the book, and if possible, uh, a happy story about how we back out of dystopia, uh, how we how this gets better, or at least what what we what we have to do, or what we should do, uh, you know, as people, as a society, if we want to back out of dystopia and want things to get better? Um,
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, I am. So I'm writing a book. This all started, obviously, with the Twitter files, and uh, because of the way that story worked, we weren't able to do um, a lot of the sort of bigger picture stories that we were seeing and one of them, probably the, the biggest story that we couldn't do because it would have taken too much time, was this theme called um, CT to CP, which is counterterrorism to counter-populism. Uh, a lot of the government agencies that were involved in what they call anti-disinformation work, uh, and these are organizations like the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, um, or uh, you know, the, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. They were originally designed, these are organizations that grew out of um, years and years and years of surveilling, uh, do, conducting surveillance on foreign terrorist organizations and trying to, pro- to counter uh, recruiting efforts by or- groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, Really, it all started with um, basically kids in suburban England and in the United States who were responding positively to uh, Internet messaging from uh, from some of those groups in the Middle East. And people in our government figured, well, what what can we do to, A, monitor this and B, counter it and that, from that little kernel of activity grew this enormous you know, $100 you know, million dollar a year industry that's growing bigger and bigger all the time. And when ISIS sort of stopped being um, as much of a threat, a lot of this capability just got shifted over towards the domestic arena um, in the United States, in part because of Trump. And now a lot of these same organizations, instead of looking for foreign terrorists, they're looking at what they call DVES or HVES, which is domestic violent extremists or human violent extremists, and they're doing basically the same stuff that they were doing um, with ISIS and Al Qaeda, but they're doing it here in the United States. And some of this has, you know, some really interesting uh, theoretical roots. Um, you know. I was Talked to some folks before the the event today, and uh, there's a German philosopher. He was actually a Nazi jurist named Karl Schmidt, um, and he uh, wrote a book called um, uh, I forget it's it's actually political theory. I forget, what, I forget exactly what the title was, but the, the idea idea is that all politics comes down to comes down to dividing uh, people into friends and foes. And this is an operating theory that began to take be very popular in the military after uh, the war on terror started. And this is absolutely the ethos of what anti-disinformation is all about. The algorithms are entirely designed to uh, figure out who is sort of on the right side and who is you know, maybe leaning towards you know, um, you know, dangerous ideas or d- ideas in alignment with Russia or anti-vaccine ideas or whatever it is. Um, that's what the algorithms are designed to, to detect, and they do that constantly. They're, they're searching your behaviors all the time. Um, and, and this is completely at odds with the You know, the ideas that the Cato Institute stands for, the the whole idea of individual liberty, rule of law, and and, you know, know, pluralism, all those things. Um, Friend and foe is not an American idea. Um, And they're they're kind of running with it. So, but I think the good news, to end on a a good note, these ideas aren't popular, I I don't think. I think they've they've tried really hard to market it to the population, that we need this. and I don't, I don't think most people want it, uh, despite you know what some of the polls say. Uh, people really don't like to be intruded upon. They don't, I don't think they like the idea of being spied on. And um, it, there's going to be pushback on this, and, and it continues to be an issue politically with um, uh, you know some some of the candidates. So uh, you know we'll see, uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes, um, but. I I still have a lot of hope. I have a lot of faith in in sort of the American people that they just, eventually, they're, they're just not gonna stand for this much longer.